0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: this is the mike savella radio program for sunday october 27 2013 on today's show yes uh, i'm still here <laughs> it's been over a month since i've done the show but it's time to podcast again i'll be reviewing some and, and playing some audio clips from uh, four recent primary care related meetings and also on the flashback segment, that's right, I'm, I'm really enjoying this flashback segment, uh, an interview from five years ago with a longtime friend of the show from show number 53 from October 23, 2008. All that coming up on episode 316 of the Mike Villa Radio Program starting right now. <laughs> Welcome to the show that is passionate about medicine and social media. This is the Mike Sevilla radio program. I am your host, Dr. Mike Savilla, the one man social media machine for seven years running. I invite you to check out the site at drmikezavilla.com. What is this show about? When I want to do do a show. <laughs> been a while. This is commentary about medicine, social media, leadership, and life. Today is Sunday, October 27, 2013. It is 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. That's right, still Eastern Daylight Time. I think we change the clocks maybe next weekend. And uh, right here at Family Medicine Rocks World Headquarters, it feels like 41 degrees Fahrenheit. That's right, the leaves are changing here in northeastern Ohio. And uh, the temperature is dropping. That means winter is right around the corner. And uh, how's your week been going? How's your month been going, kids? (laughs) My live show was over a month ago, and uh, uh, life has just been getting in the way of of social media recently. And I just feel a little tired, a little exhausted over the past few weeks, just a few blog posts. But uh, hopefully, I'll be uh, getting some uh, some energy back here a little bit, doing some blog posts and podcast shows uh, coming up. But uh, thanks for everybody who is still listening to me, <laughs> who still are curious about what I'm doing these days. Thank you so much uh, for that. Uh, and also, I've been uh, I've been recently reading. Uh, Reading the uh, uh, recently released book about Johnny Carson's life, that I might write a blog post about that uh, too. Because that's kind of why I started this podcast. I've always wanted to be like Johnny Carson and uh, doing some commentary and trying to make people laugh and interviewing people. So it's been a uh, quite an influence on my life as well. So uh, and during the course of this show, I'll be uh, uh, talking about some recent uh, primary care meetings that have been on Twitter have been uh, in the Internet, uh, have been out there. Also, I have some audio clips from some of those meetings as well, that I'll be sharing with you um, as well during the course of the show. And also our flashback segment. I've really been enjoying going back and uh, listening to uh, past shows. And uh, we'll be going all the way back to October 23, 2008, our friend Carrie from show number 53. And uh, we'll be uh, sharing a little piece of that show from five years ago. Uh, really fun kind of trying to go back a little bit and uh, listen to things there. But first, I do want to thank Blog Talk Radio for still having me be a featured host on this network. Thank you so much for that. I've been a social media hobbyist since 2005, and if you're curious, yes, I am a real doctor. <laughs> That's probably why I haven't been podcasting that much. I've been real busy at work. I am a family physician in full-time private practice, meaning I see patients five days a week in the office and in the hospital here in beautiful northeastern Ohio and uh, I will take my break and uh, after the break uh, I will be uh, uh, talking about uh, some some meetings uh, some meetings that have generated some energy and excitement in the uh, primary care and family medicine community so I'll be I'll be happy to share all that with you you're listening to the the Seville Radio Program, a proud member of the uh, ProMed Network, a podcast. You can get there by going to ProMedNetwork.com, and uh, we'll be right back. All right, back better than ever, back better than ever. This is the Mike Sabella radio program. Check out drmike Sabella.com. <laughs> so the uh, first meeting uh, that I'm going to talk about uh, was the, uh, the big family medicine meeting, the big American Academy of Family Medicine meeting out in San Diego, out in uh, late September 2013. I was not able to attend that. Um, but it's always fun to follow that on Twitter. Uh, they have a variety of hashtags, which I don't really know why they do, but they should all, like, you know, integrate that <laughs> into one hashtag because it's just too many of them. But from what I've been uh, able to uh, follow during that meeting, it's just it's just a, uh, you know, for those of you in primary care and, and family medicine, it's just a, a recharging, a rejuvenation of why you went to specialty, why you went to uh, medical school in the first place uh, and, and it's fun it's it, it was fun to keep track of the meeting even though I was back in the office uh, knee-deep in electronic paperwork <laughs> and uh, uh, I enjoyed how the Academy had uh, was able to live video stream some of their uh, uh, sessions uh, like the speeches that are also always uh, inspiring Um, and some people tweeting during the uh, reference committees and talking about what issues that they're talking about. Uh, So that's always interesting. Uh, I have a clip here that I'm going to be sharing with you. It's it's about 10 minutes, and it is is from our uh, current president, Dr. Reed Blackwelder, who has been a a guest on this show in the past. Hopefully we'll be able to get him back on the show to talk about things as well. And uh, it's always interesting seeing the, the first speech, the first presentation from the new president uh, when he goes uh, after he's sworn in and inaugurated and uh, uh, he uh, talks uh, with the huge uh, scientific assembly uh, meeting, kind of an opening session, uh, kind of uh, people's first uh, uh, look um, at the uh, new president, what he has to say uh, what uh, he will be emphasizing, what is important to him, how he will be Uh, communicating that with the board and with the academy and with um, uh, important stakeholders um, like patients and legislators and all those type of people. So I'm uh, I'm going to uh, play this clip here for you, and uh, I know that you can't see it, um, but he is without a podium Um, He is walking back and forth on this huge platform. It's kind of like a TED Talk type of thing if you've seen things like that before. Um, So uh, here is uh, the president of the American Academy of Family Physicians, Dr. Reed Blackwalder, right after he was sworn in as president of the American Academy of Family Physicians.
2: Thank you, it's truly an honor to be here. It's personally an exciting time, but it's also an incredibly exciting time for us as family physicians, because people are talking about us. From the White House to the State Houses, people are pushing primary care. And the media is constantly talking about family physicians. Now, they don't always know fully everything that we do. But they're talking about us, and that's progress. Family physicians are leading the way in transforming the health care system. This is audience participation. How many of you have an EHR? Oh, yes. How many of you have a PCMH designation? All right. How many of you have gotten money for meaningful use? Okay. Now, I appreciate the cheers, but I also know those acronyms come with frustrations. And I know, I know that transition is not easy. However, we have demanded that payers begin to recognize our value. And that's finally happening. Family physicians, we are leading the way. We're adapting our practices to be more effective patient-centered medical homes. We're learning to work smarter and not harder. Now, I was the only family physician, actually the only physician, in a small town, Trenton, Georgia, a town of 1400. For two and a half years, it was just me. I was thrown into an isolated practice where I truly was basically just working harder, and I wasn't sure I was that smart. But I hung in, and I added things to my practice. I added a hospital service and I looked to see what else was around. And I realized that in Trenton, in addition to my office, there was also a health department, there was a pharmacy, there was a physical therapy office, there were two chiropractors, and an EMS station. Independently, we took care of our community. We did the best we could because it was the right thing to do. We didn't know it, but we were really kind of wanting to be a patient-centered medical home. But I didn't have the resources then to pull that off. Now each of us is learning to have those tools to take the meaningful steps to move forward the ability to provide for our patients better outcomes, better health, and at less cost, the triple aim. Now family physicians are uniquely trained. We truly are cradle to grave. We don't have to discriminate based on gender, age, body part, disease, organ system, location in the hospital. But even if we have changed our practice, which many of us have, we are still comprehensively educated and trained. There is no one else like us. We cannot be replaced. We are what the country needs. And the country is starting to get it. People want patient-centered care. But we know what that means at its core, because we do not treat diseases. We treat people. This crucial distinction has to be foundational. Family medicine has to be foundational. Now, family medicine is about connection. It's about relationships. So I want you to smile. Just put a smile on your face. Now, turn to somebody in front of you or behind you. Introduce yourself and shake their hand. Doesn't that feel good? The trouble with doing that with family physicians is now we don't want to stop talking. So I realized that was dangerous to do. But that ability to connect in a moment defines us as family physicians. No one does this as well as we do. Family physicians are also about appreciating all the different roles. How many of you are in an independent physician practice? God bless you. How many of you are in group practices? How about hospital-based only? How about employed however you want to define it? Yes. Men. Okay, at least five of you. Good. Women. Yeah. All right. Fathers. Mothers. Patients. Okay, recognize how many times you raised your hand. We are more than one designation or one checkbox. Family physicians understanding wearing many hats. Now, right now, there's a really important hat that we all have to wear. That's a recruiter. Each one of us personally has the chance to address the pipeline issue in family medicine. This is critical. How many of you either work with medical students or know someone who wants to go to medical school? Yes, and the applause is good on that, too. We have to show these people why we went into family medicine. How we love what we do. That we never forget we care for and about people. We have to inspire and excite, and we do that. Yet with all these roles, we also have to maintain balance. And this is really challenging. Especially right now, it seems very difficult to find. But our own health and our own balance must be supported. This is really the fourth part of the triple aim, and it can't be forgotten. We have all sacrificed something to get to where we are. But you always have options. You can always make a different choice. You always have that power. Can you reclaim something that you've given up? Now, I was able to do so despite what I thought was a pretty busy life. So my wife, Alex, got me interested in yoga when she was doing her instructor training. I'm now certified in yin yoga. And then she said, you should teach a class. And I said, you've got to be kidding. My plate is already full, oh my. But Alex is really smart. And I'm smart enough to most of the time listen to her. So I teach a class on Wednesday nights. A special group gets together for an hour every week to be still. Then we go to our favorite Italian restaurant. We we have good food, stimulating conversation, dear friends. It is the most powerful time of our week. We look forward to, of all things, Wednesday night. We call it our detox retox night. What choice can you make like that? What can you do to find and bring balance back into your life? We have what it takes. We understand the power of relationships, the nature of roles, the need for balance. We're also comfortable with uncertainty. That's a core trait of family physicians. And it's a really good one to have right now because there's an awful lot of uncertainty. We have payment reform, health information technology, ACOs, ICD-10 can we maintain primary care gains from the Affordable Care Act can we keep our doors open you know the business of medicine right now is very real it's also not sexy there's no art in the acronyms the processes are not pretty but I'm going to ask you to remember way back when when you applied to medical school why did you go into medicine I want you to say it out loud and say it proud don't be embarrassed why did you do it no, that was not exactly enthusiastic. <laughs> That's okay. It'll come back after this week. You will be proud. The reality is there's so much more to our reasons than just wanting to help people. That's a core one. But I'm going to encourage you to share your reasons by video this week. There, there are video booths out there. Please go in and show people the positive role model that you are. Share your story. Now, you can probably tell I'm kind of a glass-half-full kind of guy. How many of you are like that? Thank God. Because those of you who did not raise your hands, I know that I'm incredibly annoying. I'm always talking about, that's a tremendous learning opportunity. This is a teachable moment. Or my favorite, it's all good. Well, here I stand and I realize it's better than good. I'm honored to represent and to serve you. Four years ago, I promised to tell your stories, and I'm going to continue to do so this year, because we make a difference. But we're family physicians. We sometimes forget the kind of impact we make. The days are frustrating. We go home and we vent. But please, afterwards, remember at the end of the day that person, that someone you touch, that person for whom you made a difference in their life. Now that difference may not be in the way you expect. It could be a smile, a note, a simple thank you, just caring. That's because little things are not little. So what's the bottom line? We cannot be replaced. Our role is unique. Our role is critical. It's great that primary care is being discussed right now but it must be clearly defined. We are the constant in this transformation. That point has to be made. We cannot be replaced. And we have another critical role right now. The team awaits, however you define it, however they're created. The future of healthcare in this country is teams. Well, We know how to pull people together. We know about connections, we know about relationships, we inspire, we excite. We are and must continue to be the leader of our team. Now we have real issues, but each one of us also has real answers. We know what needs to be done. We are about making the system truly one about health and truly one that's caring. We have real voices and we also carry others with us. We need to tell our patient stories. Now, jobs are frustrating. This is not a job. It's a calling. It is sacred how we do what we do. Ultimately, what I want you to get out of our time together this week are some tools. I want you to get intellectual tools, emotional, spiritual. They are designed to help you reconnect with why each one of us went into medicine. I want you to leave San Diego with your heart focused on your own art of family medicine. So I stand here before you thanking you for inspiring me. Thank you for the opportunity to represent you as your president this year. I look forward to seeing you the rest of this week. Have a great time. Thank you.
1: So there you go. There you go. I mean, one of the cool things about uh, social media is that uh, you can call that up anytime. And <laughs> sometimes, when I have a bad day, just kind of play that again, just to get re-energized and reminded, and because it's it's tough out there, kids, taking care of patients in this. In this broken healthcare system, and it's just uh, sometimes it's 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 uh, rejuvenating to uh, even follow on Twitter uh, a meeting uh, like that, uh, the meeting of my organization, and uh, I know all of you feel about that the same way. When you know your own organizations that all of you call home, um, so when we when we take a break here, then we'll. Uh, take uh, another meeting here that uh, I was actually I went to so uh, we will uh, we will talk about that you're listening to the Mike Savilla Radio Program live on Blog Talk Radio on a Sunday afternoon check out com. we'll be right back <laughs> the Mike radio program, drmikezabella.com. So the second meeting I'm going to talk about is uh, uh, one I was at. It was in uh, the great city of St. Louis where the uh, World Series is going on right now. And uh, I was there during the, uh, what was it, the National uh, Championship Series, National League Championship Series. And I was there uh, from October uh, 11 and 12 uh, in uh, St. Louis. And it was the Direct Primary Care Summit, and uh, the first of uh, many, hopefully, put on by the Family Medicine Education Consortium, fmec.net. And uh, we talked about direct primary care on this uh, show before, um, where uh, the uh, patients uh, pay a monthly fee to the provider, to the physician, for... Um, access for care, and uh, for the most part, the insurance company is cut out of the deal. And we've had, I've interviewed uh, a number of guests and uh, on this show before talking about that, talking about this new model of care, and is it a better model of care? Well, still early to tell, but uh, that is more and more people, more and more providers, more and more physicians, more and more patients uh, that are exploring this, that are signing up for this, that are finding that it is better access uh, for them for healthcare. And the first audio clip I'm going to be uh, sharing with you is uh, from Dr. Erica Bliss, a, a good uh, friend of mine uh, from the Seattle-Washington area, uh, the president and CEO of QLiance.com. And um, here uh, she talks about the model, she talks about the the, the beginning of the company q It gives you kind of a good background a little bit about what direct primary care is. This is uh, Dr. Erica Bliss from the uh, Dr. Synonymous show, my good friend uh, Pat Jonas uh, podcast. This is from September 17, 2013. This is about a 10-minute clip here with Dr.
3: Bliss and Dr. Jonas.
4: Direct primary care. How did How did you get into all this?
3: Well, I was brought into this whole thing by my cousin, Garrison Bliss, who had been doing a form of this kind of practice for a number of years. He started a practice in 1997, um, charging a flat monthly fee for comprehensive primary care and not billing insurance. And um, he modeled it after some of his partners who broke off and set up one of the first sort of high-end concierge practices. But he looked at them and said, well, you know, while he thought the business model made a lot of sense because it eliminated all the frustrations and costs of billing insurance uh, and billing fee-for-service, he didn't like the idea of care for very wealthy people and leaving everyone else, you know, to fend for themselves. So when he opened his practice um, or transitioned to his practice, um, he started out charging about $65 per member per month, and then uh, eventually over several years it went up to about $100 and then in about 2005, he said, you know, I really think that this model has great potential to change the way we do primary care and potentially change the healthcare care system. And that's when he gave me a call and asked me if I would be interested in trying to create a scalable model of what he had done um, <clears throat> and see if this is something that more people in the market would, would want. So that's how I got involved, and it really piqued my interest because I felt like, a big part of my reason for going into medicine in the first place was to figure out how to change the system so it would better serve people. And here was a great opportunity, I thought, to do that. So that was my—that was the, the genesis of QLiance and the genesis of my involvement in it. I'd always admired the, the, what he was doing from afar and thought it made a lot of sense, but I had never had an opportunity to get involved until he decided to found QLiance.
4: Uh-huh. And... So so the vision then was uh, to go where with it?
3: Well, we planned to start in Washington State and uh, open up as many clinics as we could find the demand for and really work on perfecting the delivery model and the business model um, and make it as efficient as possible, as appealing as possible, and figure out a way that it would be appealing not just to individuals but also to employers, maybe to government, um, maybe even ultimately to insurers, um, because we thought you know it would be great to market this to individuals, but if we really want to have a powerful tool, uh, if we really wanted it to grow and and start to really transform primary care and healthcare care in general, it had to be something that the bigger purchases or purchasers of healthcare care would get interested in. so that's what we really set about to do was to come up with really sort of a replica- replicable model that anybody can do and And from the beginning, we thought, you know, we'll do this in Washington state and if there are opportunities to expand out of state, we would do that. Um, or if there are opportunities to help other people transform their practices into direct primary care practices, we would do that as well.
4: Aha, uh-huh. and then how did, um, so how did you find the people to get in the practices? Or were they already there or did you build the whole thing?
3: We built the whole first clinic from scratch. Actually, we built all of our practices from scratch, hired our doctors, hired our support staff, um, and, and really built it as a, a company from the ground up. And um, we did have a couple of doctors who joined us who brought over patients from their former practices, um, but we still, you know, they, they came on as employees of the company. Um, and, you know, we, we did that because we thought, at least at first we wanted to be able to set a totally different tone in the practice um, and not deal with, you know, legacy systems and legacy attitudes about care. Um, what we instead did was we found people who were of like mind, who really felt like they wanted to put the service and the personal attention back into primary care. And we're really willing to kind of shed a lot of the sort of negative attitudes that we've, we had all sort of uh, adopted over the years you know, just because of the bad system, and we're willing to willing to really make them put themselves at the service of their patients. As Garrison used to say, you know, we work for our patients, and um, he really meant it, and it really is true. And it's a very different way of approaching care than uh, a typical fee-for-service practice, where you're incentivized to just rush through and see as many patients as you can. So we really looked for people who were anxious to do something different, who really got this model, who really understood it, who understood service, and were really willing to really put themselves, like I said, at the service of their patients. And that's worked really well for us. We've had a lot of great people join us, both, you know, physicians as well as support staff and administrative staff who all feel very passionate about the mission to transform care on behalf of our patients.
4: sounds like fun. Now there, there are like the fever service things, the worst uh, hamster wheel kind of things seem to be the employed, big network, hospital-owned kind of things. Does that look that way in Seattle, or is that different out there?
3: You know, I think it varies a little bit from place to place. Um, I think that even the private, independent private practices here that yeah. are billing fee-for-service, I mean, sometimes I think they have to hustle even more because they're totally responsible for their bottom line. They don't have anyone else to make up the difference. Um So I I was just talking to a practice the other day and they said that they're seeing some of their doctors are seeing between thirty and forty patients a day. And I thought that's just crazy. I mean, I it gives me a headache to think about it. We see maximum (laughs) sixteen people a day. Maximum in a full day. And that's not even all in person visits. Some of those are phone visits, you know, some of that are those are, you know, sort of care coordination time, that kind of thing. And so the thought of racing through that much that many face-to-face patient encounters in a day just, it makes my head spin. So I think they're under the same pressures. Um, You know, in in some of the bigger systems where the primary care practices have been bought by hospitals or, you know, regional medical centers, uh, I've heard lots of stories from them about the kind of pressure they get from the system um, being told that they're loss leaders, that they're losing money, but, you know, so therefore they're expected to generate a lot of referrals for the system. And you know, it's Total. and they get given reports that show you know how many MRIs they're they're ordering compared to their colleagues. Ooh. So there's a lot of pressure to to refer and generate lots of costs for the system.
4: That's what I call feeding the beast.
3: Feeding the beast, exactly, exactly. There's a lot of that, and it it's really kind of it's it's really amazing to me. I mean, not having been in that kind of situation um, myself, and certainly not for in, in this particular model. Um, you know doctors who have come to us and tell us stories about what it was like working in their multi specialty group practice or wherever and it's sort of like you don't want to believe it but it's true <laughs> it's just yeah. it's sort of like hearing stories from the it's front sad. yeah it is so it if is. you
4: think about the the expansibility so do you envision like setting up thousands of practices or finding some way to connect to other networks or entities or what what do you think the connector is going to be the relationships are going to be
3: well, I think for QLiance, we recognize that, you know, opening and operating hundreds and hundreds of clinics is probably not practical. It takes a lot of work, a lot of close attention to detail, all that kind of thing, to really run these practices right. But we do intend to, wherever there is demand, we will certainly set up clinics um, and run them just like we run our other QLiance clinics. At the same time, I think in order to grow this movement, which is also what we're very invested in, um, you know, we are looking for opportunities to create formal and informal networks of practices who want to do direct primary care um, and, and to help facilitate those practices to do this because it takes some, you know, it takes some different, a different skill set, some different systems uh, to be put in place to be able to do it right. Um, You know, we had to build our own IT system to handle the business model because there really is no system out there, no practice management system, that has a concept of a monthly fee, nor are there systems that can put a person as a member of a group. So, for example, if you want to contract with an employer and take care of all their employees, most systems don't have any way for you to link that person to that employer and make them a part of a group. All the systems see is an individual person attached to an insurance plan. But that's very limiting. It doesn't allow you to group people together and do population-based care on behalf of an employer, on behalf of Medicaid, or anything like that. So you know, having built this platform, we're now live on it for the last um, month and a half or so and, and working out the kinks. But you know, eventually this may be a tool that we can offer to other practices because it's very much designed to run this business model, which is pretty simple. Um, it's designed to help people serve large customers like an employer. Um, And the clinical side of it is designed for easy use by the staff, great communications, great workflow management, um, and easy capture of very good data that can be used to constantly work on improving care and improving efficiency and outcomes. So that's the kind of thing that I think will eventually help this grow faster is, you know, offering up our experience and our tools to help other folks kind of leapfrog some of the mistakes that we made, because certainly we hope that people don't have to you know, bump their shins on as many obstacles as we've had to over the last six years, because it's been a bumpy road for sure.
4: Yeah. So when you talk about the data then, is there like a data maven with a a headset and eight screens in front of them that sort of knows everything and does everything?
3: Not exactly, not yet. In fact, we... um, we are just now just now being live on our new system. Up until now, we've had to wrangle with our old system and try to get data out of it that that is really usable. A lot of the systems will produce reports, but you know you'll find that the reports aren't really reliable. The data isn't consistent. Those kinds of things. So, up until yes, we've had a couple of people, data mavens in our organization, who have uh, I, I think of it instead of like peacefully sitting there with a headset and eight screens, more like they're wrangling some dragon <laughs> and wrestling it to the ground. That's, that's been more what it's been like. So now we're really excited because we have a much cleaner um, database and system that we can get information out of. And we're, we're actually going to be partnering with a company to do some analytics for us um, that will be much more sophisticated than anything we have. And they'll be able to also look at claims data that we get from our clients which we can put together with our EMR data and really start to get a handle on what's happening with people and what we can do to improve their care.
1: Uh, That is uh, Dr. Erica Bliss, uh, President and CEO of Q Alliance out of uh, Seattle, qalliance.com. And um, that is also Dr. Pat Jonas from the Dr. Synonymous podcast here on the network. Their interview was from September 17, 2013. I'll put a link Um, On the show notes, uh, because their full conversation was about 40 or 50 minutes, very good interview. Uh, And hopefully uh, we can get Erica here on the show to talk about QLiance and direct primary care as well. Uh, Big shout out to our good friend, Dr. Val, who's listening live uh, today. And uh, so thanks for your notes and uh, comments. Uh, The uh, only other uh, audio clip that I will share with you was from the close of the meeting, the close of the direct primary care summit. And if you want to get more information on the schedule of this past meeting, it, has, it is at fmec.net, fmec.net, uh, Family Medicine Education Consortium. You scroll down to the bottom, and uh, you can get the uh, uh, the schedule uh, and who was there um, at the meeting as well. Uh, so this is about a five minute clip. This is uh, from the closing of the meeting, and you will hear Dr. Bliss. You will hear Dr. Uh, Jonas. Uh, The first person in this clip is uh, Dr. Brian Forrest, uh, who I believe is out of North Carolina, uh, has a direct primary care practice there. Dr. Jonas is from the Dayton, Ohio area, has a direct primary care practice there. And of course, Dr. Bliss is from Seattle, Washington. So this was the uh, last, um, uh, the closing thoughts. And uh, listen, at the very end uh, for Dr. Bliss, uh, because I think there's really kind of a rallying cry for those in direct primary care um, uh, about uh, what they really want to try to do with this new uh, model of care. So this is the closing comments for the Direct Primary Care Summit. The,
5: the, the folks you're looking at up here on the stage, you know, when we got together and decided we were going to do this, I guess it was at the F-MEC, um about a year ago or so, um, one of the goals was to obviously bring together a group and do some education about different models um, in the DPC area and arena, but the other goal for all of us is that the things that bring us together is the common needs and resources that we need. Um, we all need common advocacy on a national level. You heard from Jay Keach yesterday about uh, the need for um, really lobbyists to change national law, to make it favorable for our type practice. And then you also heard from other folks that said we need a sense of community. I think we've established a pretty good direct primary care community at this meeting. Um, but there's also other needs we have. Resources, tools, um, you know, vendors, all kinds of things that we share and that, that we can share with each other. Best practices and that type of thing that really allow us all to, to bring each other up. So although we do have our unique identities and differences, we really do have a lot of common goals and needs And so, one of our hopes is is that after today, uh, you know, we all come in as individuals and we leave as a group of doctors who really want to take back patient care and really make it about the
4: physician-patient relationship. It's fun to see the pipeline assured year by medical students and residents and other people with their kind of enthusiasm and insight um, from uh, North Carolina where my son works. In Hershey, Pennsylvania, where I learned about chocolate as a family breakfast resident. Um, exciting to see those young people and to see the the uniqueness of each of us dialogue, so we sort of start to become a tribe with a culture. And I would hope that we can find a way to anchor that culture and the tradition of DPC as we have it now with enthusiasm, excitement, the citizen like pride as we or maybe possibly shredded by the numerati who have to get the data to prove that our culture is worthy. So, so that's my thing. It's great to see the founding people um, the, and to hear about the struggles they went through. Uh, I'm happy that they took care of that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's so nice, but uh, I love the tribe and I'm worried about the culture as we move ahead so we can have, have and retain a culture and the uniqueness at the same
3: time. One thing I'll share with you, Jay Pavi from Coordinated Care said to me afterwards yesterday, you know, you should stop even calling this a movement, this just is. just his <laughs> wow, okay. Um, that's, that's. Uh, we, we still are kind of in the mode of feeling like a movement, but uh, but I, I think, you, thinking about his point, I, I wanted to just throw that out to everybody as we think about what we're doing. You know, his comment was, you know, he and a lot of other folks out there who are looking at, looking to providers for new um, ideas are looking for us to step up to the plate and just own it. So, I'll throw that out as something we should really think about, and you know, movement suggests that we're a revolution forming up and all that kind of thing, which is great, it's very energizing, but we also, as I've said in a couple of my opportunities to speak, um, we have a fantastic opportunity right now, and this is a, a remarkable point in history, And as I semi-jokingly say to colleagues, if primary care providers of all stripes can't step up right now and own the healthcare system and change it on behalf of our patients and ourselves, um, we should just go home. Because there's never been an opportunity like this. I mean, if you look at at the history of transformational changes in healthcare systems in other countries, um, there was a confluence of historical forces that allowed something to happen. And if you look at what's happening in this country, we, we have all of this, we have a, a our, our economy failed on us. Um, it, it was exposed how fragile it is and how badly healthcare is, um, how much healthcare is contributing to that fragility and, and it's worsening. And I think this is the first time in, a, certainly in my lifetime and, and I think for even longer, that, um, people realize that there's something, the general public knows there's something wrong with the healthcare system, and we're constantly talking about it. Look at how much it's in the news. Constantly, constantly. Another thing that's changed, when we first started Key I had to explain what primary care was. And now, people kind of get it. So that's six years later that I don't have to explain primary care. I don't even have to explain direct primary care at this point. They all kind of know what that is too. They want to talk about the nuts and bolts of how to make it work. So that's a tremendous sea change. At the beginning I was like, are we ever gonna get past the discussion of like, what primary here? Anyway, we're done with that one. Um, we've had historic legislation passed that is just like any major change, has a lot of warts and cracks and all that kind of stuff, but it's created momentum for change and it's started to make it not okay that you know, a huge chunk of our population can be completely without access to the healthcare system. It's just not okay anymore. And Republicans and Democrats and everybody else, um, nobody is going to stand up and say certain people should not have health care. You can't say that, and it's, it's really part of the public debate. So, um, you know, we've exposed the quality deficiencies in the healthcare system, the service deficiencies. It's like it's all been laid there. You can't put that back away. You can't pretend that it's not there. So I really urge us, as we think about direct right primary care, my passion for this is to change the healthcare system, um, and I know a lot of you share that passion, I urge us all to think about how can we be really strategic, own the healthcare system, step up to the plate, this is the moment we've been waiting for. We know primary care is, needs to be the foundation of the healthcare system. We have a lot of great ideas, a lot of motivations, we want to do the right thing for folks. Let's figure out a way to step up and do it. And if direct primary care is the mechanism that allows us to do that in the right way, fabulous. So let's figure out how to do it together.
1: Uh, yeah, I want to apologize for the uh, kind of bad audio uh, there. I was uh, probably about, I don't know, 15 feet away with my video camera. Uh, but I did get a video file. The video file of that will be up on drmixabella.com uh, hopefully in the next uh, couple of days, and you'll be able to. Uh, get a little bit better audio uh, from that. Uh, so before I take my break, I, I do want to give a, a shout out to the uh, to the website that they're uh, promoting and using, uh, the direct primary care coalition, uh, dpcare, uh, dot org. And uh, from their um, site, uh, they say about us uh, across America, you will find a growing number of patients, employers, doctors, nurses, skilled health, care providers, business leaders, unions, civic activists who are dedicated to the support and growth of direct primary care. The Direct Primary Care Coalition is united in the pursuit of a healthier, stronger America and the availability of quality, affordable, and immediate primary health care. And they define uh, primary care in the following way on their site. Uh, Primary care includes disease prevention, health maintenance, patient education, counseling, diagnosis, and treatment of chronic uh, and uh, acute illnesses. It spans preventative care such as immunizations and checkups, routine treatment of common injuries and complaints, and maintenance for ongoing health issues. Primary care is the foundation of good health. It is the key to preventing uh, debilitating and expensive problems, a healthcare solution that doesn't address direct primary care is no solution at all. So go check out dpcare.org and the uh, aforementioned Dr. Pat Jonas uh, is going to have a, a, a going to try to have a mini-type Ohio-based primary care meeting, uh, maybe in Columbus or in the Dayton area, coming up in December. Uh, and I think he's been talking about that on his uh, website blockspot.com. So I will take another break. And uh, I will be uh, talking about next uh, something from our good friends at the uh, uh, PrimaryCareProgress.org website. Uh, You're listening to the Mike Savella Radio Program here on the uh, Blog Talk Radio Network, and uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Maximilla Radio Program here on a Sunday afternoon here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Just a short little segment here. I just want to uh, uh, help promote a a project here from our friends at the uh, PrimaryCareProgress.org website. And uh, at the beginning of the month, um, they um, have communicated with their medical student chapters uh, something that they're calling the uh, Primary Care Progress uh, Pledge or the Primary Care Project Pledge. Uh, and it's an interesting concept. You can get more information at uh, primarycareprogress.org and also on their site. It is theprimarycareproject.org using the hashtag pcareproject. And uh, their their uh, petition, they want people to sign a pledge and petition. It goes like this. I believe in... Healthcare care that prevents illness before it begins treats the whole patient, cares for community, stewards, our resources responsibly, and is accessible to all, I believe, in primary care. Now is the time to invest in the, in the health and financial stability of our nation by strengthening primary care. I, therefore, pledge to support those institutions that both train future health professionals and place a high value on primary care. I resolve to help encourage the prioritization of primary care training throughout the entire healthcare system. I urge our educators to train the next generation of healthcare practitioners to meet our nation's needs. A healthcare system built on a strong foundation of high primary care, the time is now to support primary care. I lend my voice to the call for revitalizing primary care training and education. I call on others to join me. Together, we will ensure that America has the primary care system that it needs. So, uh, if you go to their site, theprimarycareproject.org, they have um, around a thousand signatures at this point. They want to try to get 5,000 by the first of the year, I believe. And uh, they're at this point. I mean, they're mainly focusing on healthcare institutions. Um, because you know, there's a lot of healthcare institutions that say they do primary care, but they actually don't. If you look at their numbers, but obviously they're trying to generate uh, some support uh, in communities and patients, in providers, physicians, um, and uh, you know it seems like it's silly. It seems like it's futile. Um, you know, to some people, I've gotten that feedback from some people, but, you know, as, as we've always said on this show, and as uh, many other people say, you know, if primary care, family medicine does not stand up for itself, then who will? So uh, I encourage you to go check that out. It is theprimarycareproject.org. You can also go to primarycareprogress.org to get more information. And, you know, the reason why I, you know, support, you know, the Primary Care Progress Pledge You know, is that, you know, we have to let everybody know about the importance of primary care, the importance of uh, family medicine. You know, primary care and family medicine are the future of healthcare in this nation. And I think that the primary care community and the family medicine community, you know, have already presented and are practicing different models of care that are cheaper, that have high quality, that give better satisfaction, better patient satisfaction, better provider satisfaction, better physician satisfaction, whether it be the uh, patient-centered medical home model, whether it's the direct primary care model. It is models away from this fee-for-service, broken fee-for-service system. So that is why I signed the primary care project pledge, I encourage you to do the same thing. You can tweet about it as well at pcareproject.com and now we'll take another break here and uh, I'm going to be talking about a meeting I was out in uh, uh, Denver area um, earlier this month. You're listening to the Family Medicine... (laughs) You're listening to the Mike Savilla Radio Program here on the Block Talk Radio Network and uh, we'll be right back. I will have more audio clips from that meeting coming up right after this. back so I was in uh, Denver um, earlier this month uh, and I was at the Collaborative Family Health Care Association annual meeting and uh, I was helping out with uh, that a little bit and, uh, and you can get more information excuse me you get more information at uh, CFHA.net the Collaborative Family Health Care Association officially began with a conference in 1995 Uh, But it has its roots in conversations and meetings dating back to 1993, I'm reading from their website. CFHA is a member-based, member-driven, collaborative organization. Uh, For us, collaboration isn't just a word in our name. It defines in who we are, how we interact with other organizations. CFHA promotes a comprehensive and effective model of healthcare delivery that integrates mind- and body, individual, and family, patient, provider, and communities, CFHA, achieves this mission through education, training, partnering, consultation, research, and advocacy. Uh, so a lot of it is, is trying to integrate uh, primary care with mental health care in the same setting. And that's a lot of their advocacy efforts are. For example, putting a mental health professional in your clinic, in your primary care clinic, in your family medicine clinic. That's what a lot of their advocacy has to do with. And they're very nice people to talk with. I mean, it's, uh, uh, it, it is uh, it's very cool and very, not really refreshing, but it's very cool how uh, other uh, health and medical professionals, other than physicians, uh, talk about primary care, how, how the mental health community whether it's psychologists or whomever, saying, hey, primary care has the key to this um, as well. Uh, so it was nice to, to meet a lot of these people. Um, with my schedule, I have to follow up with these people. Just say, hey, it was nice to meet you. Uh, but I, uh, I'm definitely going to do that. I have a couple audio clips I'm going I'm to play for you. I was kind of part of their social media team, uh, which this meeting has never done before, so it was nice to kind of talk with them and, pe- and see people who are excited about social media as a communication tool. Uh, so the first uh, club I'm going to have for you is uh, we, uh, we talked to some people coming out of uh, educational sessions, and we asked them uh, what they were what their expectations were from the meeting again, You know, this audio is not that great, but uh, the videos are already up at DrMikeSavilla.com. Just scroll down a little bit, uh, and you'll be able to see the video uh, as well. But this is some audio uh, from those short little interviews from participants from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association meeting 2013 in Denver, Colorado.
0: I'm hoping
2: to learn a little bit more about uh, medical
6: education. Is to continue to see um, the transformation that I think has occurred uh, in the last six, seven years, at least as long as I've been involved. To, to be able to blend and get a balance between the clinical heart and soul of who we are as individuals mm-hmm. and also be able to, to leverage ourselves as a community and do more collaborative research.
3: i um, hoping to learn more about sustainable models for integrated care and um, how to manage that from a financial
2: perspective. Uh, my expectations for the conference have already been exceeded.
6: Tell uh, me more. The, the first uh, plenary was a knockout, yeah. mm-hmm. and um, I saw new ways of conveying information in a way that um, catches an audience and, um, brings them in so powerfully and immediately want to use it, want to use all the films of each of those presentations and um, I, I can think of audiences that I would want to see most of those different ones. It was really very powerful.
7: And
8: I want to find ways to disrupt the status quo and um, in particular Dr. Uh, Long's um, presentation last night just really check it out me. Um, so, so far, so good. what I'm putting together are some things that I can bring back and we we are moving towards city campaign. And I think it's right. going to be really important for me
1: to be able to bring back um, just some more data, if you will, uh, some more
5: um, support for this system support for the integration of the health care. My expectations for the conference are to find concepts and to get uh, inspired, but also to find some concepts that I can apply systemically to the work that I do now, which is not in the clinic, but is with other agencies. And so much of the thing that we learn, we can transfer it other aspects of our jobs. So that's what I'm looking
3: right. for. So what are your expectations of the conference this weekend?
8: You know, I come here expecting to be, uh, to have a fire
3: lit, and it happens. I come for information, I come for education, I come for knowledge, ideas, but a lot of it is to have that enthusiasm reinvigorated.
1: Oh, well, I come first
3: and
7: foremost to continue to.
0: Know
3: with who enjoy and respect, and learn about of collaborative, innovative and integrated care. hear about
7: some
1: of the on, uh, uh, issues, uh, and All right, Dr. so again, I apologize about the bad audio there. The, the video is already up at drmexesuela.com, and. Um, you can see the uh, the video, and, and you can see where we recorded it. It was uh, out in the hallway, uh, but that was the best way to get people. So so go check that out. It's at com and you'll be able to see um, some people from the meeting. Um, the other uh, cool thing that they asked me to do uh, was to be the moderator for a session um, uh, called the uh, Petra Kutra, uh which people may be familiar with. It is a it is a presentation style where they give you um, I believe, uh, 20 slides in six minutes, and you have to uh, present a high-level idea during that time. And we had about six presenters there, and uh, you can see the videos at drmikespilla.com uh, because this audio may be uh, pretty bad as well, and if there it is, I'm just going to cut it off early. But uh, you'll be able to see, um, you know, how they were able to present. I wasn't able to get the corresponding slides but you'll be able to see the method by which they were presenting um, and the audio was from a uh, video camera probably about 20 feet away so uh, the audio wasn't that great but they have never done this kind of Petrarcia session at this meeting before they were very excited about it uh, they're very excited about how it turned out uh, so I'm gonna try to play a um, uh, some audio from this um, if, if the audio is not that great I'm just gonna I'm just gonna cut it off, but you can see the uh, video presentation at uh, drmigcevilla.com. I believe it is probably about four or five uh, posts down from the top, and you'll be able to check that out there. But let me see if we can just play a little bit of the audio here. You'll probably need to turn this up here a little bit, um, and we'll see if we can get you some of the audio from one of the presentations here from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association annual meeting.
4: And a further qualified
5: community health center is
0: the Saginaw Machine.
5: The topic has been to Health and Hope, Finding the Soul of Primary Care. Dr. W.
6: Long. Health image. Poverty, crack cocaine. Question. Which is more dangerous for a patient? Okay, unfair question. You likely can't answer the question, I certainly can, but it's a question that I think will move us toward thinking about something I believe should be on the minds of primary care providers. The idea that hope is healthy. After the unfair question, someone has offered an answer. Dr. u UPenn professor and author of the famous crack baby studies, after reviewing 25 years worth of data, concluded Poverty is a more powerful influence on the outcomes of inner city children than gestational exposure to crack cocaine. Others have looked at the relationship between hope and health more directly. Dr. Scioli in his 97 Hope study noted how decreased hope scores correlated with increased frequency and severity of illness. Dr. groupman at Harvard has written how researchers are seeing that a change in mindset and alter neurochemistry. More recently, Dr. Lopez has documented how hope increases healthy behavior, like increased consumption of fruits and vegetables, regular exercise, safer sex, and smoking cessation. So what? So the pathophysiology of poverty makes me want to talk about the psychology of hope, because scholars are beginning to discern that hope is healthy, and I've seen I'll sometimes hope that they be the best medicine when a patient could care less about the latest evidence-based medicine. So, my finished residency I ended in Saginaw, Michigan. It's Detroit's little brother to the north. Along with Flint, Saginaw provided the people in the parts to keep the automotive industry booming through the 20th century. Lately, not so much. Now Saginaw, or Stagnasty as my patients like to joke, <laughs> has declined all the way to the top. The FBI has called it the most violent city in America every year from 2003 to 2009. In 2012, Forbes magazine described it as the most dangerous city in America for women. The city is very small, but the problems are huge. It's a good thing I went to Grand Junction to train to be a rural family
7: doctor.
6: To give a little clinical context, I was the 14th provider at my SQHC in 8 years. In my first 12 months in the clinic, there were 30 homicides and 117 non-fatal shootings within three miles of the clinic. Now, you can't really buy, or excuse me, sell property in the neighborhood, but my buddy did buy a house last year, three bedrooms, 1,600 square feet, for 400 bucks.
7: And the provider whose position
6: I inherited had the ignoble distinction of being the number one prescriber of narcotics for regional HMOs. So not to say started out hopelessly in over my head. But that was two years ago, and now I'm still in over my head. But <laughs> I want to say to you, foster hope. Hope is healthy. <clears throat> so at first you at this point think I'm not. At best simply naive. Either way, the bill I'm pushing is hard to swallow. The stories. They're depressing, and the stats are hard to believe. Like when my grandmother pulled me inside in a well child check recently and said, Doc, Johnny saw his father murder his mother last month. What do I do? It's easy to feel hopeless. It's hard not to feel overwhelmed. But if you're beginning to think that it's tough to be a doctor in the neighborhood, just try being a patient. The fact is we cannot appreciate the difficulties many of our patients face. Take Morris, for instance. Morris is an ex-con man, hit man, with bipolar disorder, severe anxiety, and two sins in the state bank. Well, he came to me last year. He says, Doc, my wife left me. I asked, why? He says, well, she's a prostitute, and she got tired of the asking her not to work the weekend. He went on to complain about the neighborhood, and his mood swings, and anxiety, and I frankly didn't know what to say to him. So I said, uh, are you taking a medicine? And his response, I quote, listen, Doc. Nobody gives a shit. Why should I? And that's it. Forgive the impropriety. But his is a sentiment that I see all too often in too many of my patients who become convinced that nobody cares. Why should I? Unfortunately, the sentiment is real, and it's reasonable, and I think it's of the fundamental reason why poverty is so bad for health. Because poverty breeds hopelessness hopelessness becomes unhealthy by causing a patient to care less. The stadium of the office is giving the Percocet. I don't want to hear about AA. No, I didn't refill my hydroxychloroquine or whatever. What's frustrating for you is pointless for them. There's no real reason to quit smoking or avoid binging. No reason to take the Prozac or skip the Xanax. Try and convince this patient that smoking cessation is good and the extra vitamin right is not. You can't. I've tried. There simply isn't anything in Hippocrates or up to date that works. And that's what I want. Sometimes, when the messy front lines of real life, when medicine gets mixed up in chronic illness, poverty, and depression, or some mixture of it all, we have to admit we need something more than the right script. Morris needs something more or I see something from the soul of primary care. Now that move towards something more, I call the great reminder, okay? It's like the psychosocial equivalent of swizzle, pulling out the mural penum or the daftomyosin, you cannot use it too early, but it can save the day. And well, what is it? It's the clinical attempt to bring a patient to an awareness of their immeasurable worth. Okay, sensing a healthcare homily, you may resist it. <laughs> no (laughs) philosophical grounds for granting any patient immeasurable worth. I struggle to see it myself, but thank God my faith saves me, whispering often against emotion and inclination that every patient has dignity and worth apart from what they might offer me and apart from what they can contribute to society, certainly apart from what they own or have the ability to buy. Why? Because patients are more than dust in DNA. They're persons made in the image and likeness of God and as such they have dignity and worth beyond measure. This is the clinical smelling salt of my faith. That's what a theological can transform the clinical. Asking and inviting me to do more than just write scripts or make a referral. Inviting me to recognize worth. And if I recognize worth, a patient may experience care. And by experiencing care, they begin to believe they matter. And when a patient believes they matter, it's like the grand plan of primary care. because they move beyond apathy, and ambivalence toward active participation in maintaining their own health and well-being. So, here's my rural white guy who said inner-city perspective. He takes the craziest attention to listen and to care in such a manner that communicates worth apart from knowledge or beauty or skill or whatever it is that culture and society require for one to believe they matter. And while there's no guarantees, you may have the privilege of hearing somebody like Morris Ask you to wean him off his head Or Gloria may tell you about her last AA meeting. Willie may say, Hey, how do I get a gym membership? And Peggy may say, hey, Can you refill antidepressant? And this time, I'm actually going to take it. That's the power of hope, working in the heart of a patient to do what no provider can: make good decisions, forego bad habits, and see how as a priority and reality in life. Foster hope.
1: Uh, so, again, I uh, apologize for the bad audio. You can see the video with the audio at uh, Dr. Um And um, so before I get to the uh, flashback uh, segment, um, I do want to t- tell you about a meeting I'm going to be at in a couple weeks. Uh, the Aligning Forces for Quality uh, meeting is going to be in Austin, Texas, November 6th through 8th. Um, And you can get there by going to forces, the number four, quality.org, forces, the number four, quality.org. Forces for Quality uh, is the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's signature effort to lift the overall quality of healthcare in targeted communities, reduce racial and ethnic disparities, and provide models for national reform. AF4Q asked the People who get care, give care, and pay for care to work together toward common fundamental objectives to lead to better care. The 16 geographically, demographically, and economically diverse communities participating in AF4Q together cover 12.5% of the U.S. population. Uh, After six years, AF4Q communities have built transformative partnerships, often where none have existed before. And uh, I'm going to be on a a panel there, uh, a breakout session called Influence Through Social Media, Trust, Share, Engage. And the description goes like this. Social media is an uh, undeniable force in healthcare decision-making, advocacy, and communications. Increasingly, it is the way of turbo boosting your influence in the field and in the conversation, making connections you otherwise could not have made, building a, a following for your efforts. So I'll be on a panel along with, Ed Bennett, Director uh, of Web and Communications Technology, University of Maryland Medical System, Susanna Shepard, Public Affairs Specialist for the Center of Social Media from Mayo Clinic, uh, and Alicia Staley, Consumer Representative uh, from the greater Boston area. So so I'll be in uh, Austin, Texas for uh, a couple of weeks, so uh, that'll be exciting uh, for that. And uh, so I will take my break here, and after the break I will be... um, Uh, I will be uh, sharing a show from 2008, October 23, 2008, from our friend Carrie. It is show number 53, going all the way back there. Can you believe that? (laughs) Uh, You're listening to the Mike developer Radio Program here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. One last break, and uh, we will uh, share our flashback segment coming up. to the Mike's radio program. So our last segment here uh, is a flashback segment all the way from 2008, show number 53. Show number 53. Can you believe that? That's from October 23, 2008, which uh, with our good friend, Carrie, it's been a long longtime uh, friend of the show all the way going back to the Dr. Anonymous uh, days. And this was the previously uh, Dr. Anonymous uh, radio program. And, um, you know, at the time, um, she had a Twitter and a blog called uh, Neo Nurse Chick, and um, now she doesn't anymore. And uh, she's form- formerly formerly a, um, a neonatal intensive care unit nurse, uh, which she's not anymore. Uh, and uh, now she's a, a pediatric headache neurology nurse at a huge children's hospital in the northeastern part of the United States uh and uh now uh she's married and she has a newborn uh so it's been nice kind of following her her personal and professional life and also during uh this uh, flashback interview uh share some of her uh piano pieces uh she uh she sent me some audio files of her playing piano so that'll be an interesting thing to, to have for all of you to kind of share along. So, uh, so this is the flashback segment from uh, show number 53 from October
0: 23,
1: 2008. And uh, enjoy this. this. This is fun to put together. Here we go.
0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Dr. Anonymous show 53, Neander's Chick. Um. a show where we go beyond the blog to bring you the best people in medicine and new media. I'm, of course, your humble host, Dr. A, and you can always find me at DrAnonymous.com. Today is Thursday, October 23rd, 2008. It is 9 p.m. Eastern Time. It is a crisp. 43 degrees Fahrenheit and 6 degrees Celsius. I have to admit something right off the bat here that I'm not feeling that good this evening, so the energy level is a little bit a little bit on the low side here. So if you can pick that up at the beginning of the show, so but I do have my favorite beverage with me tonight, so hopefully that will pick me up a little bit. But I know our guests will definitely pick me up. Who will join us in a few minutes? I am very excited uh, about our guest this evening, a longtime friend of the show and of the blog, the Dr. Anonymous blog. Yes, the Dr. Anonymous blog used to be just a blog two years ago. And uh, our, uh, our guest uh, coming up uh, knows all about that. That is uh, Carrie from uh, the blog NeonurseChick, neonursechick.blogspot.com. And uh, she's going to be coming on in a little bit. Uh, As you can tell from uh, the title of her blog, that that she is a uh, neonatal nurse. She's a nurse in the neonatal intensive uh, care unit.
8: It is very intense. And I think we're lucky. We have a really good group of people um, that work together. And we all take care of each other. And we're all there to lean on each other, too, which is nice. Um, but it, it is at times very, very intense, and you do become pretty involved um, with the families to the extent where I think all of us worry about the babies when we're not there, and really wonder how they're doing. Uh, we really enjoy when people come back and um, bring their baby back to see us, even years after the fact that they've been there, so we can see how they how they've done as they've continued to grow. Um, And in some of the families, like every year our NICU has a reunion uh, for the babies that passed away, and that's really a nice thing to be able to all get together and remember the babies. Because for the families, sometimes we're the only ones that ever knew their child. If they may not have ever had other visitors into the neonatal unit, uh, we're really the only ones that can relate. So... um, It's it's a pretty tight knit unit, and it's a really it is a neat place. It's an intense place. It's very very unique from other areas of the hospital. Uh, The babies can survive things that adults could never survive. But um, you know, it is a really it's a great place to be.
1: Dive into that a little bit. Uh, you've always had a, a love uh, for music. How did you uh, come to uh, what what drew you to the piano?
8: Oh gosh. Okay, here's more med props for the family doctor. <laughs> um when I when I was um about five years old or so, my and this is in a different state, a different place, so it's not the same doctor, but <laughs> my family doctor and my kindergarten teacher, independent of one another, both suggested to my mom that I take piano lessons. Um because my my motor skills needed a little bit of help. <laughs> so my mom had actually played the piano. She took lessons for about 10 years, I'd say. Um, she was, you know, she average with it. She really liked it, and um, she had the piano in our house. And um, so we basically lived with playing the piano just, you know, as kids, just playing around with it. I mean, I've got pictures of me sitting at the piano from when I was, like, <laughs> a baby, <laughs> But um, I started lessons when I was six, six years old. And I think every day for six months leading up to those lessons, I was like, is it time yet? Is it time to take piano lessons? <laughs> I was oh. so excited for it. I was just going to say, you know, it's, it really is um, important to, I think, find some find something to keep going for um, when you're facing chronic pain. Uh, it's so easy to get caught up in the the day-to-day things and I know for me being online is a place to unwind about it so I may talk about it a lot more than I probably do in in reality in real life Um, you know I certainly um, have times where I just get totally wrapped up in the pain and in dealing with it and treating it and things like that and it becomes completely disabling Um, but you know for the most part, at the same time, like throughout all this, I try to look for something. Like even when I was out of work all this past time, um, you know, I really look for just the one thing that kept me going every day. Even if it was just getting up out of bed and making the bed. You know, if that's if that's as good as I could do for that day, then that's good enough. You know, sometimes you just have to hang on to each small little thing. Do
1: you have any uh, Do you have any closing thoughts uh, for
3: us tonight before I let you?
8: I guess the biggest message I would say about um, chronic pain. Um, for those who don't experience it, and um, but for those who work in the medical community, is um, just to, to keep a fresh perspective from time to time. I know it's really, really hard when you've got so many drug seekers coming in and people manipulating and things like that, but um, people who live with chronic pain do exist, <laughs> and they're not all drug seekers. And, um, you know, many of them are trying quite hard in order to, to feel better, and um, so to be compassionate, and for those who are who are living with chronic pain, I would say certainly um, to to keep fighting. There's just every day is, is a new day, and you, and you have to just do what you can. And not everyone is able to work. And for, I'm very fortunate that I have been able to work and continue quite the job that I have. Um, you know, I've I've been blessed with that. But um, you know, no matter what things you can do, you just have to take. Take the good with the bad and, you know, take it one day at a time.
1: I believe that was five years ago. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, I just, I just want to thank Carrie just for being a, a good friend of the show, good friend of me for 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 a while, and we got to meet once in person um, a few years ago. It was a great experience, and uh, it's been uh, it's been great seeing uh, all the pictures of her uh, her child on uh, on Facebook there. So it's been uh, it's been very nice to meet people that you uh, just interact with on on social media. So uh, hopefully that will uh, that will continue here as as the years uh, go on. So, but uh, that ends my show here today, kids. And um, hopefully I'll be doing more of these podcasts. It's been a while since I've uh, done this. So uh, hopefully I'll be able to do writing more blog posts and uh, doing more shows. Uh, you can get all my information at uh, Doctor Mike Sabilla. Uh, dot com. You can follow me on Twitter and, uh, and Facebook and uh, LinkedIn, all that stuff, all that is at, uh, com. So that ends my show. Thanks to everybody who listened live and who uh, listened on the archive as well. Um, and, uh, we will talk to you all very soon. Have a good week, uh, coming up and, uh, hopefully <laughs> there'll be more of these shows coming up soon. So, um, We'll see everybody later.